Well, hello there. I hope you're having an amazing day. And I have found my way back into the humble recording studio, which is my cupboard. And I'd like to begin by thanking you guys for tuning in to the first episode of Touching Grass. Now, a few things before we start. The t-shirt for this episode is out now. The Kickstarter is also up. I'm proud to say that we have raised one pound and so you can imagine any help anything at all really appreciated um we have an instagram we have a twitter and you can find everything that i've talked about in the link tree that i will put in the bio of this podcast now i don't want to waste any more time so i want to dive right in with episode one the sufi path did you like that i'm gonna do it again wait the sufi path So, growing up Persian with a Muslim mother meant that, and every time that she congratulated me, every time she said something affectionate or dropped a bit of wisdom on me, every time I was told off especially, there was always some kind of an inkling of a Muslim anecdote, or like a quote from the Quran or an old Persian idiom. Most of all though, my mum would bring back these tiny nuggets of things she had read in her youth. These old bits of Persian literature from from people like Hafez and Rumi and Ferdowsi. They told me off just as much as my mum did. So I started to get more familiar with them. Now I grew up slowly and I'd start to ask my mum a bit to explain like what these were. And one thing that would come up over and over again was the word Sufi. She'd mentioned the Sufi background of the stories the Sufi poets who wrote them, and all of their Sufi followers. Now, I never really paid attention to that part, the whole Sufism aspect of these things, until a couple months ago where I picked up this book. Now, this book was called The Conference of the Birds. My late teenage years, and now, like, my early 20s, have been hugely, hugely centred around learning about everything spiritual. Psychedelics were always a huge interest for me, and it started off as a kind of scientific curiosity, but it introduced me to the huge realm of mysticism. I was led onto the work of people like Timothy Leary, people like Aldous Huxley and Richard Alpert, who went on to become Ram Dass, who I will make sure to talk about in future episodes. And with them came the worlds of like Buddhism and Hinduism, all of these Eastern mystic practices. And at the end of the corridor waiting for me surely was Sufism. Now, within Sufism, the story, The Conference of the Birds, is really, really famous. My copy of the books was one of those old Penguin classics, and it had been translated from the original Farsi, which is very helpful for someone like me who somehow managed to grow up Persian but never learned how to read and write. Now, the book was written by Attar. He's a Persian poet from the 12th century. Attar itself actually means uh, perfumer, I think, which is a reference to what he did. Like he was, he sold um, perfumes and he was like a merchant of sorts. Now, the book was a huge epic poem. It was a kind of an allegory for the path to enlightenment. And it was the path according to the Sufis. Again, Sufis, Sufis. So I thought it's about time I learned more about them. So in this podcast, we're going to talk a bit about the origin of Sufism. We're going to talk about what they believe in, and we're going to talk about a couple of famous Sufis. And I'm going to finish off by talking about some of the, like, some of my favorite Sufi stories. So let's get into it. 
researching Sufism, one thing that came up a lot was this phrase that Sufism is at the heart of Islam. Now, Sufism is the part of Islam that is deeply spiritual and deeply mystic. And in Sufism, they try and find God within themselves. But before we dive into that, let's look at how it came about. Now, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was born around the year 570. And with the introduction of Islam onto the scene of, of civilization and the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, passing around the year 632, there was a massive spread of the kingdom of Arabia during the 7th century. And this was under two major caliphates, the Rashidun and the Umayyad Caliphate. These caliphates were Muslim leaders perceived as having been handed down like the torch of Islam from Muhammad. They conquered a huge amount of territory and like it was it was huge. It went all the way from India to Spain. They defeated the Sassanids of what was then Iran as well as like Palestine, Egypt and Morocco. So within all of this to understand where Sufism came from, you need to understand what asceticism is. So asceticism is pretty simply just the practice of self-discipline. It usually involves things like avoiding indulgence and is usually for religious purposes. So Christian ascetics include monks who kind of isolate themselves and abstain from things like sex. Eastern ascetics include people like in, the, in Hinduism and Buddhism who fast and they devote themselves to God. Now, in Islam, the ascetics were seemingly always around. We don't really know if the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, himself was also ascetic. But what we do know is that he had a couple friends who lived this lifestyle. And the lifestyle they led was different from the lifestyle of a lot of the Muslims who actually profited from the Islamic conquests. Now, it seems like the adoption of this kind of ascetic lifestyle was a rejection of those Muslim elites who were profiting off the spread of Arabia and to them had lost touch with the heart of Islam. So Muslim ascetics over time learned from the practices of those from other religions. So they had followed the works of Christian monks in North Africa. Later on, when they started reaching the East, they started more learning from the Buddhists and the Hindu yogis. In the Quran, interestingly, there's a quote that says, you'll find the closest in affection to the believers who say we are Christians, for among them there are priests and monks and they are not arrogant. So you can see that even then the Muslim ascetics were following the Quran and this carry, carried on throughout the rise of Sufism. Now, unlike most monks that were Christian who kind of withdrew from society, the Muslim ascetics lived in cities and they practiced their lifestyle within people, like within the, the realm of other, other Muslims. And the lifestyle back then was called Zud. Now, the life involved an aversion to the Muslim elites that we talked about. They dressed in rags and they performed really humble jobs. They did things like herding or bloodletting back in the day. A huge part of the life of a Muslim ascetic was Zak. This translated is basically just the remembrance of God. It was a kind of a practice that was meant to clear the mind completely of thoughts apart from what is divine. And it was a form of meditation. So one way that they did this was repeating the 99 names of God that they have in Islam. 
And this is actually really sim similar to the practice of having a mantra that you find in, in the East, which I find really, really interesting. Now, onto the seventh century, what? <laughs> no, onto the ninth century, sorry. Um, ascetism in Islam started being called Sufism. Now, Sufism, really interestingly, actually means wool wearer. And it's a reference to the clothes that they wore. They were wearing, obviously, I said rags, these like humble wool wraps around them. But interestingly, apparently, there's no actual evidence of, of them wearing these things. But anyway, um, the Sufism movement swallowed what had previously been deemed Zud, that lifestyle. And the famous ascetics of the past were considered Sufis from then on. And they were huge figures in Sufi literature. In the 11th and the 12th centuries, Sufis began converting people to Islam. Now, this was a huge consequence of one Sufi called Al-Ghazali, who lived around 1058 to 1111. He studied theology at a college in Baghdad. And he, like a lot of us, he had a huge spiritual crisis that ended up with him converting to Sufism. He wrote a lot and he taught a lot and he was a huge influence on the kind of cultural religious scene of the time. And him being that huge intellectual figure inspired a lot of Sufis to spread. They'd travel around, they'd gain reputation for their powers, so to say. They, they would go around healing people and praying for people. And one thing that they do a lot was confronting Islamic rulers. And they do this with that same sense of aversion to the elite. In the process, they'd gain more respect from people and, of course, they'd gain more Sufi followers. Around the same time, there were a lot of other people who were um, practicing Sufism, who today are really, really famous for what was basically just deepening the lore. They wrote so much and... The kind of 12th century is now looked at like a golden age of Sufi work. One guy that I have to talk about is in Al-Arabi. So he published a huge amount of work. And some of the like main things that he's famous for is describing the nature of God, describing the relation of God to the universe, and describing how intrinsic God is with human life. His work was really like just vivid and it was so eloquent. And it never lost touch with how obscure and abstract the stories would be. Almost to this point where they were like riddles. Now, one thing he's really famous for today was this one idea about God's absolute existence. So he talked about like the oneness of God again. And how timeless God was in contrast to how finite and transient the existence of everything else is. Now, one thing he said that I think is really, really profound is such knowledge can only be had by actual experience, nor can the reason of man define it or arrive at any cognizance of it by deduction, just as one cannot without experience know the taste of honey, the bitterness of patience, the bliss of sexual union, love, passion or desire. Now, this was talking about the knowledge of God. He really got to what was at the core of Sufism, direct experience of God. He was saying that you can't deduce rationally what the nature of God is. You have to experience God firsthand. So moving on to the 13th century, Rumi entered the scene. 
Yep, the same Rumi from the start that my mum used to tell me off a lot. Now, Rumi began and he was really famous for his writings about love. He was a refugee. He actually was based in Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, and he taught in Farsi. From him, his followers developed this dance, which Sufism is actually really famous for today. And a lot of people reference this as the whirling dervish. It's this musical singing performance where you spin around in these clothes that would open up and make them look like spinning tops, basically. And they were really famous for bringing music and dance to the center of Sufism. Now, the dance is so, so interesting because it's actually meditative in itself. The dance is meant to clear your mind so that you can be fully receiving of God's, fully receiving of what is divine through just the constant whirling and spinning. Rumi himself was hugely influenced by this one person, Shams Tabriz. He was an older Sufi teacher who introduced him to a lot of Sufi concepts that were present in his writings from then on. Today, Rumi is hugely celebrated for his poetry. And Rumi's work was continued later on by his followers like Sadi and Nizami. The stories all had these heroes and these fables that were meant to just translate Sufi ideas into a more tangible form to teach people. From then on, there were more poets, more believers, and still to this day, there's like a huge community of Sufis across the world. In London, I know that there's a couple of places where you can uh, go and like join in with the whirling dervish dance, which I really want to try someday. I really want to try it. So I think that covers where Sufism came from. It's as ancient as Islam, and you can see that already like it's quite, I've mentioned some of the things about its mysticism, about how spiritual it is, about the meditative practices that they do. So I think that's a nice segue onto the beliefs that they have. So we know that Sufism is a part of Islam. We know that they use the same book, the Quran, and we know that they look to find direct experience of God. They want to search for what's authentic so that they can understand the true reality of what things are like. Now, this understanding of the true reality of the universe is called Marifat. So, we've talked a lot about God, but I haven't actually explained what God is to a Sufi. And I think this is important because there's a subtle distinction in what God is to a Sufi in comparison to Abrahamic religions. So, in Sufi thought, there's kind of two main pre-existing objects. There's God, who is basically explained by the 99 names god is a divine being who's all-encompassing and he's a sustainer and the second object is man now man is supposedly separate from god we're a creature that doesn't know god in our primitive state because of something that they called nafs now nafs is similar to the idea of ego Nafs is the part of you that assumes that you're an individual, that you're a self, and that you're separate from others, separate from God. Now, this kind of theme of duality of man and God comes up all the time in Sufi literature. Like anything you read will have some sort of reference to us perceiving ourselves as separate, but finding God within us. So about Nafs, 
there's a lot of layers to it. In the Sufi law, they explain how at the very basis of nafs is the first layer, which is kind of like the seven deadly sins. They describe how things like pride and greed and jealousy and lust is the first layer of nafs that divides you from God. The second layer is the kind of conscious side of you that is awake and accuses itself for listening to the ego. And it's at this layer that you understand that you're just like a pet, basically, to things like pride and jealousy. And you repent and you ask for forgiveness. The third layer of nafs is the level where you listen to your conscious, you stop listening to your ego, but you're not fully surrendered to God. The next two layers are similar and they're just a bit more at peace, satisfied with what they call the will of God and is a bit more developed than the previous stages. And the last stage is supposedly the purest stage. Once you, each layer of nafs is unveiled, you're fully, and I quote, in agreement with the will of God. For Sufis, in order to unveil like these layers of nafs, the first step is what Rumi said as finding the place in you that is closer to you than your jugular vein. And that's just such a beautiful quote. Now, in Sufism, your this place like closer to you than your jugular is your heart. And it's not your physical heart, of course. It's more the soul. It's the truer, higher self. It's the center of your being. And it's not your ego. So to begin ascending to God, your heart needs to be polished and purified to be ready for the journey. And they do this by following the Quran and doing what Muhammad did. So a lot of the time they talk about just being pure, being pure of everything that isn't divine. And of course, there's a lot of practice that comes with this. It's not just a walk in the park becoming enlightened. The word for practice in Sufism is actually called tariq. And similar to tariq is the different tariqs, which are like orders of Sufism. They're kind of like different sects of it with their own kind of um, methods to become enlightened. They're, they basically, it's just different training courses, basically. So in Sufism, there's different ways that you can practice your faith. You can do zakr, which is like chanting those 99 names that we mentioned before. There's murakaba, which is meditation. And there's sohbat, which is discourse, like talking to people. So the point of meditation in Sufism is to watch your heart, watch the place that's closer to you than your jugular vein, and focus on the divine. Now, there's different stages to meditation. There's seemingly stages to everything in Sufism. The final stage is called fat, victory. The Sufis say that at this stage, you're free from space and time, and you can see, hear, and taste anything, and you're present anywhere in time and space. Okay, so back to the spiritual journey. One thing that comes up a lot is these degrees of certainty. So, Imul Yakim is the knowledge of certainty. Then there's Ainul Yakim, which is the eye of certainty. And there's Hakul Yakim, which is truth or reality of certainty. Now, these are meant to describe the kind of levels of understanding that you progress through on your spiritual journey. 
you go from learning about it as like a concept, having this imul yakim, this knowledge of certainty, and over time, supposedly you're able to reach this point of hakul yakim, the final level, where you have this ultimate, true, deep sense of understanding what God is and what it's like to be God. Now, the final stage, really interesting, is really sorry really interesting <laughs> the final stage really interestingly is what people call ego death now in sufism they call this fanna your sense of self is destroyed and you undergo what they call banna riba now after this ego death you're empty and from the emptiness you're said to be reborn and from this point you live a life of excellence and knowing of the divine and you get to share this with other people in Sufism, someone who's already realized God and is in unison with God is called a sheikh or a master. Now, in Hinduism, they have a similar thing. They call them gurus. And the teacher is meant to be a person who gives wisdom of the path. But they're more than just a teacher. They're meant to embody what the path is. They're meant to be the path. They are the goal. They've done this already. They are that emptiness. They've gone through ego death. They are supposedly a corridor for the light of God, so to say. Now, what I find amazing, like what, what really I am in love with when I learn about these spiritual practices is how much commonality you find when you study different things. Ego death or like the annihilation of the self is called nirvana in Buddhism. It's called moksha within Hinduism, as well as in Jainism and Sikhism. In Christianity, supposedly someone who goes through ego's death is called a saint. And Hindus also call them rishis. Now, there's a pattern here. People seem to have figured out all across the world that once you realize that the self is transient and to reach God, you have to go through this destruction of the self that's ridiculous like understand for a second how amazing it is so many cultures have come to the same same conclusion about how the universe works now a lot of people see religions as kind of like reaching at concept like people complain that religion is a projection of us just being all existential and sad but to me i feel like this is proof of something else it's not unscientific. It's very simply just looking in yourself and describing what you can see and of what they do see in the past all across the world is supposedly that this idea of self, this idea of who you are, isn't real. It's not there. And to get to this point of divinity, to become enlightened, you need to wash yourself clean of the self. For thousands of years, people of all different cultures have come to that kind, that same vein, that same idea. The ego is immaterial and within you is the divine. Shamans in South America, shamans in the Arctic Circle, in South Africa, even in Australasia and Polynesia, they all use meditation, they all use hallucinogens, and they all use group practices like this to pull the veil of ego from your higher self so that you can unveil the collective unconscious. I could go on forever talking about this, but I am just going to 
take my chance to spread this across a lot of different episodes in the future. I want to talk more about how this conclusion has been reached by so many cultures and even by psychology, like in Carl Jung's teachings and more recently in the 70s and with the 21st century so-called psychonauts who use psychedelics for this purpose. For now, though, I want to talk about the fact that Sufism, for me, lets you visit what is true at the core of Islam from a place that's separate to how institutionalized it is. It's at the core of Sufism not to look for God in the system, but to look for God in the inside, from your heart. And I think that's so, so important with the kind of issues that institutionalized religion brings up today. And it's so helpful for people who are kind of averted by religion because of how systematic it is and the problems that come with it. Now, uh, talk about getting sidetracked a bit, but I want to talk about some famous Sufis. Okay, there was one Sufi who I think is really important to talk about because he was actually prosecuted after having meditated for a really long time because he woke up and he just shouted, I am truth. This declaration was a direct reference to the fact that divinity was found within him. He found that the self wasn't real and he found that God was found inside him. And I find this all across different religions. There are countless saints who were persecuted for similar spiritual discoveries, who were just called blasphemous and burned at the stake. Now, a famous female Sufi was Rabia of Basra. She's known for talking about how God should be loved for the sake of God and not out of fear, which I think, again, is so important with how institutionalized religion has become these days. She's telling you to look for God and love God because God is love. Now, I'd like to wrap this up by just bringing it back to that book that I've read recently called The Conference of the Birds. So the book is an epic poem. And it follows a group of 30 birds led by the hoopoe on a journey to find their king. The king is this legendary bird. bird. <laughs> no, the king is this legendary bird called the Simor. Now, the poem is so deeply Sufi to its core. The birds at the start of the book are described by their species. And each species is meant to be a reference to a type of human. So the nightingale is supposedly a lover and the finch is supposedly a coward. And you can see how that would go on. Now, these birds follow the hoopoe. The hoopoe is a real species of bird. You can Google it. But in the story, it's a lot like a sheikh. It's their spiritual leader. The story is set out as the birds on this journey and posing a bunch of questions to the hoopoe. They talk about their concerns and their doubts and with each complaint, the hoopoe meets them with a different fable. Now, each of these allegories hold a bit of wisdom about the Sufi spiritual path. And they're often wrapped up in really abstract verses that might be a bit difficult for Western readers to understand. So I'd like to read one out and just explain what its meaning is to me. A royal hunt swept out across the plain. The monarch called for someone in his train to bring a greyhound, and the handler brought a dark, sleek dog, intelligent, well-taught. A jeweled gola sparkled at its throat. 
Its back was covered by a satin coat. Gold anklets clasped its paws. Its leash was made of silk threads twisted in a glistening braid. The king thought him a dog who'd understand and took the silk leash in his royal hand. The dog ran just behind his lord, then found a piece of bone abandoned on the ground. He stooped to sniff, and when the king saw why a glance of fury flashed out from his eye. When you're with me, he said, your sovereign king, how dare you look at any other thing? He snapped the leash until his handler cried, let this ill-mannered brute roam far and wide. He's mine no more, better for him if he had swallowed pins than found such liberty. The handler stared and tried to remonstrate. The dog, my lord, deserves an outcast's fate, but we should keep the satin and gold, the king said. No, do just as you're told. Drive him exactly as he is, away, and when he comes back to himself some day, he'll see the riches that he bears and know that he was mine, a king, but long ago. So, when you hear this story, at least when I heard this story, my first immediate thought was, damn, the king's a dick and the dog's just chilling. But that's a very Western way to read a story. Now, in the West, we like to kind find one character and root for them. And in this situation, I rooted for the dog. But the story is meant to have the dog represent the human soul and the king represent the divine. The story is meant to teach you about how humans are preoccupied with things that are meaningless in the face of God. And it also shows how we've been left with some kind of semblance of heaven, a glimpse of the divine. Okay, now I'd like to finish by just talking about the end of the Conference of the Birds. So spoiler alert if you want to read it. But true to those Sufi ideas of God being within you, of God being, as Rumi said it, the ocean to which your ego is a drop. When the 30 birds reach the end of their pilgrimage, the story goes as so. The chastened spirits of these birds became like crumbled powder, and they shrank with shame. Then, as by shame, their spirits were refined of all the world's weight, they began to find a new life flow towards them from that bright celestial and ever-living light. Their souls rose free of all they'd been before, The past and all its actions were no more. Their life came from that close, insistent sun, and in its vivid rays they shone as one. There, in the Simorg's radiant face, they saw themselves, the Simorg of the world. With awe they gazed and dared at last to comprehend they were the Simorg at the journey's end. They see the Simorg, at themselves they stare, and see a second Simorg standing there, They look at both and see the two are one, that this is that, that this, the goal is one. How amazing is that? When they finally finish that massive pilgrimage, they see the Simorg and they see themselves. God was them. God was inside them that whole time. And when they saw this, when they went through that ego death, all of the earthly melodrama melted away and the line between the self and the divine melted away. Interestingly, Simorg in Farsi actually translates to Si, which is dirty, and Morg, which is bird. So Simorg actually means dirty birds. It was kind of like the Darth Vader um, (laughs) reveal, not to ruin the story. But yeah. Anyway, again, you see how at the core of Sufism, 
The self is all that stands between you and the divine. And this is what Sufism is. And that's what is at the heart of Islam. Okay, so that's a wrap on the first episode of Touching Grass. I really hope you enjoyed this. Thank you so much for listening. I loved this and I can't wait to keep on going. Uh, I attached a bibliography to the description of the podcast. And I also, again, just reminder, T-shirt is out, Kickstarter's up. Um, and I think that's all. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I love you guys so much. Um, if you can, follow the podcast, rate it. And I'll see you next time with episode two, The DMT Frog. <laughs>